Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina, and it's such a pleasure today to be here with Dr. Jen Kennedy, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist and somebody who is an expert in all things related to human sexuality, and we're going to have a great conversation. Dr. Jen Kennedy is actually a sexologist, which is just a fascinating area, and I want to welcome you to the show, Dr. Kennedy. How are you doing today? Thank you. Good morning. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking some time. Uh, we met last week because of a story I did for NewsHawk about your new incredible program. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. You are a sex therapist in Santa Barbara, and you're very highly regarded, well-reputed. People know you as an expert in the field. And now you are doing something that's a little bit different, a little bit broader. You've started this pleasure project program where you coach women from all over the the world, the country, I guess, technically, on uh, various matters related to women's sexual health, sexual satisfaction with uh, themselves or their partners. And it just is a fascinating thing to talk about. So I appreciate you taking time uh, to to talk about this today. So, So Dr. Kennedy... What is the Pleasure Project? What is this all about? Yeah, well, I so appreciate you taking an interest in this because I think it is a topic that we should be talking about, that we deserve more attention on. Um, So this is an outgrowth of the clinical work that I've done as a sex therapist, as a couples therapist for many years. And it's a concentrated um, program that includes, I mean, there's lots of legs to this. There's general content that you can just read if you, for example, want to just get more information as a woman about sex and sexuality. There's like a free newsletter you can get. There's also a podcast where I'm starting to have um, build content there, have guests, that type of thing to talk more about um, that topic as well and just all explore all the different pieces of sexuality. There's also what, what you alluded to is the small group offering, and that's called the Pleasure Circle. That is a paid um, participation and it's a smaller group and it's got a curriculum that is defined to help women start to understand their bodies, their sexual history, their likes and dislikes, and just kind of move some of the obstacles that typically get in the way of, of a happy sex life. So I'm just, I'm sort of like an evangelist right now for sex. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was actually Googling this morning. It's funny. I was taking a walk with my dog and, um, I was looking for uh, t-shirts that say Viva La Vulva. I was like, I think I'm going to make them. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's my new sign. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, you know, it's not lost on me that I am a male here uh, doing a uh, podcast, you know, with you, who's an expert in this field. And more specifically, what the work you're doing has to do with um, women and women's satisfaction. So let me just, you know, dive in there and just like ask you, you know, what are the issues that women face when it comes to the um, coaching that you're providing? Uh, Are are we talking about, um, uh, well, I'll just ask you, we often think of sexual health from male terms, a male lens, okay? You know, we know so much about um, things men can do to increase their sex drive. But I feel as though there's less public awareness or acceptance or education about women. There seems to be this perception that, oh, well, you know, women are just, you know, 
always sort of happy and content and satisfied. And it's all about the male sort of experience. And so can you talk about why it's important that we all increase our awareness of the women's role in these types of uh, situations? Yeah, I think you are dead on there that so much of the cultural overlay and, and languaging has been about male satisfaction and women get missed. There isn't a lot of research about women's pleasure. There isn't, um, you know, there's magazines that are dedicated Cosmo and that type of thing to sexual pleasure, but it's really partner focused. It's very male performative focused. It's not oftentimes really factual, like helpful information to facilitate the woman's pleasure. So I like men being part of the conversation. I like them being interested and curious and tuned in because it means if they have a female partner that they will benefit. Um, and so much of this mystery and sort of like ambivalence, even I think around women's sexuality, it just perpetuates sort of nobody's, nobody's having a great time. And so it, it's like, I want that to shift. And so Having more information helps women share it with their partners and also explore on their own. So I think it's, it's, it's important. It's important to know. And I think um, it's this weird thing of like, we all have sexuality. We all have <laughs> genitals and yet we don't really talk about it much. We don't talk about, we, we sort of have innuendo surrounded and there's lots of publications and TV shows and, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of adjacent in our, especially in our Puritan culture of the United States, but yet we don't actually openly talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't say the word clitoris very much. We don't, many of us even know where it's located or, or how it works. So I think it's, it's important to do that and to give a platform for women and for people in general to facilitate women's pleasure, right. everyone's pleasure really, but yeah, women. Is my goal. And what what kind of challenges or issues do the women bring up in your pleasure circle uh, project? Uh, what kind of things are you hearing? Yeah, so gosh, it's a range of things. Desire is the biggest, probably just sort of that ambivalence of like, eh, I don't really feel that that sexual. I don't feel motivated to have sex. Um, so you know, that kind of presents in different ways, but that's sort of the biggest one is lack of desire, low desire, mismatched desire, meaning their partner wants it more than they do. Um, embarrassment sort of like that also kind of comes up of just like, I mean, it's cloaked in a sort, sort of a larger umbrella of shame. Like I feel embarrassed to ask this question. I feel like I should know this. Um, Maybe if there's been um, some religiosity sometimes can also make a lot of hesitation about um, really understanding, like, like wanting it is okay, doing it is okay, but talking about it is not okay, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so there's, there's sort of, yeah, there's an awkwardness, but there's a curiosity. There's sometimes an ambivalence. Sometimes there's pain too, and pain can present for, for various reasons. Um, less so typically, um, certainly with a pleasure circle, but um, clinically that, that shows up with, with clients seeking sex therapy. Yeah. You know, for when you think about men and the women experiences, and I, and I want to ask you about, about women and women too, I'm starting the conversation sort of in this place, but it's, it's obviously there's a broader, um, 
perspective on you know uh, who gets together and you know who we're attracted to and that sort of thing but just looking at the sort of the tr- traditional male and women pairings um we all heterosexual like- heterosexual versus traditional Heterosexual. Yeah, exactly. That's why you're here to to call me on that, correct me on that. But when we're talking about heterosexual pairings, there's sort of a presumption that sex is uh, an orgasm for the male, right? Like, like, that's like a a guarantee, like, it's it's not sex if the man does not have an orgasm. But there's also this running joke in our culture, right? That like, women fake orgasms, that it's, they don't really have them as often as um, men may think. And so can you talk a little bit about that um for for our viewers do women have orgasms every time they have sex do they fake (laughs) orgasms Uh, what does it take for a woman to have an orgasm and i know those are broad (laughs) questions but but i mean i would imagine we're talking about satisfaction uh it's different things for heterosexual relationships yeah boy that is a big series of layered questions um all of the above i would say is the is the one answer um Women, I think only about 25 to 30% of women have orgasms through penetration. So that's actually a considerably less common way that women are going to be orgasmic is penetrative sex if they don't have clitoral stimulation at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is drastically like misunderstood. That said, um, it probably appears women are having orgasms when they're not there. I'm sure there's a lot of faking going on. Um, and why would that happen? Okay. So that switches over to the psychology piece. That is about people pleasing. That is about um, partner connection, not wanting to hurt their feelings, not wanting to have the awkwardness of like, why didn't it work? Um, you know, there's lots of reasons. It can feel really good without actually bringing a woman to orgasm. I would argue that it's sex even if there's not penetration, I would argue it's sex, even if there wasn't orgasm for either party. Like I define sex much in a much broader way. And that's probably also because uh, same sex couples have lots of sex without penetration. And I, I think it would be hoove us as a as a group of people to like look at sex in a more broader definition. You know, but yes, I think historically uh, sex was considered only penis and vagina Mm -hmm. penetrative and the man finishes with orgasm. But that is just not the whole picture at all. And and in terms of your your pleasure circle and you just started this, right? This is a Mm -hmm. new program that you launched uh, a month ago or so or Mm -hmm. very, very, very recently. And I guess, generally speaking, are there certain times of your life when uh, maybe these issues arise a little bit more than others? Is it an age thing or is it maybe uh, if you've been with the same person for a long time or kids get involved? uh, Can you talk a little bit about just maybe some things that may be common among people who may be having these experiences? Because we know for every one of the people who come to you for uh, for uh, coaching and therapy, we also know that there's so many people who are so scared to ever do that. So maybe you can help yeah. them understand here by those watching, you're not alone. Yeah. yeah so, well, the lack of orgasms happen throughout the life cycle. <laughs> and again, that's probably logistically because of partner communications and of us understanding our own bodies too. Um, that said, I will say that typically 
people more present, women present more for sex therapy, in my experience, mm, more like around 35 on up. So most, most clients I see are between 35 and 70. Um, that might be a function of prioritizing it. That might be a function of um, a shift in terms of what's happening in the life cycle. You know, typically early 20s, um, the body is working a little bit differently. The hormones are racing, the, the, the proximity to partner options um, is greater. There's also, you know, from a lifestyle standpoint, there's typically more substance use going on. There's, which creates less, you know, inhibition. Um, so, so there's other things that facilitate lots of, lots of sexual contact in the earlier twenties. Later on, as people get busy with life, with career, with family, um, and things shift, priorities shift, stressors increase due to, you know, family or work obligations. So things, the picture kind of changes. So then you imagine like there's this kind of awakening. That's what I'm finding mostly like, and with the pleasure circle, the women are between this first group anywhere between uh, 40 and 64. Um, so if you look at that stage of life, uh, many of them have raised kids. They are in mid-career or, you know, kind of like later end in the career and they're returning to self and they're thinking, hmm, like what, what do I want my career or what, what do I want my sex life? It's not my career. My career is fine. What do I want my sex life to look like? And my partnership, you know, they might be having empty nesting where the kids are about done and off to school and they're wondering, okay, what does our partnership look like? And how, how can our sex life actually get kind of reignited? Because it's been sort of in this holding pattern while we were busy doing these other things. But now it's like, what about us? Like, let's, let's have this actually be good because maybe it was always sort of like fine, or maybe it was really hot in the beginning. A lot of people say it was really hot in the beginning. Like the first six to 12 months was amazing in the sex life. And then it was like, meh. And then it just sort of like did this decline. So they're coming in to get sort of a tune up or to make it better than it ever was because it wasn't really ever great. And so it's an opportunity to sort of drop into self because the, the group is not for couples. It's really only for um, women, um, individual women. And, but they can take that back to their partnership and sort of get some, some language and some information that they can share and enhance their partnership with at whatever stage. And it, and it is open to any women of any age, but yeah. Right. And it's a six week program. Can you talk a little bit about if somebody commits to this, what is the length of time? How often do you meet that sort of thing? Sure. Yeah. So it is six weeks and each week we meet right now, the schedule is set to be evening hours. So six to seven, 15, 75 minutes. So in that 75 minutes, we are each week is sort of loosely structured starts with sort of a check-in um, that is thoughtful. I'm, I'm giving prompts. Um, some psychoeducation about different things. So anatomy, um, the sexual response cycle, um, culture, uh, you know, those kinds of things. So I'm giving some science and some information. And then I'm also prompting some writing and some, some thoughtful introspection because everybody's sex life is really unique. It's their own, but I'm, I'm trying to help them look at their own stuff and then on a group level, kind of share a bit of that, that they feel comfortable with to build awareness and kind of see mirroring in others. So 
the group aspect is actually really valuable. I mean, I do a ton of sex therapy one-on-one with either individuals or couples and that is valuable, but then it's just me sort of like reflecting back and making um, information and observations with an individual. There's something so transformational about group work. And so I really think it's an awesome opportunity to, to sort of exponentially like kind of grow and, and progress around this topic. Yeah. And people who are part of your program can be from anywhere, right? You could have people in California or New York. And so there's a certain amount of uh, uh, benefit from being far apart, I guess, you know, know, Mm -hmm. probably not a huge chance that you're going to know somebody in the room. Maybe it's possible, but it decreases, you know, it decreases the chance. Let me ask you a question about sort of these uh, stereotypes we have in our uh, culture that you, I'm sure, deal with. Uh, You know, there's this perception that men tend to be very visual in terms of their attraction and in terms of how they want to connect with with uh, people. And then uh, there's this stereotype that women need emotional connection first in order to feel attracted to somebody in a way that can lead to sex. And I'm just sort of wondering if you, if that's that, is that true in your experience, is that a bad stereotype <laughs> that, you know, men, men, if, if, if it's visual and appealing, yeah. they're attracted, women need to feel as though there's a connection and a romance there before they really are ready to escalate the relationship. Yeah. So a couple of things there to unpack. There have been studies where they look at what's happening um, when seeing, uh, sexual cues and, you know, the optic nerve, like, like there is, there is some evidence that men have a more visceral reaction to visual women notice it and notice it as sexually relevant and sometimes have arousal, but they arousal meaning body reaction, but not necessarily desire in the same way men do. Whereas men have more access to spontaneous desire, which is like, I saw that and it made me, it made me feel desire. Women are like, "Mm, I know that's sexually relevant, but I still feel like, so to your point, kind of what the data shows is that women tend to, they like story more. They like, yes, they need, they, they don't, and this is never across the board. There's, you know, exceptions to both sides, but oftentimes women Um, I find when I'm helping couples, I see this happen a lot too, where women care about all the things that happened before, right? They're not just in that moment of like, Ooh, that was hot. And I'm, I'm now in the moment. Women are like, how did you treat me an hour ago? And how do I feel generally about the relationship? Um, now if they watch, like, like I know several women who like to read erotica. So that's storytelling that sort of helps them shift their mindset into that space. So that's a bit different. And that, that contrasts to just like watching porn. Now, porn is stimuli that is sexually relevant, but it often isn't convincing enough or interesting enough to use shorthand for women. Whereas men are just like, Oh, that's good. I'm good. Let's go. You know? So yeah, it's just, it's, it tends to be women tend to need about, I think it's about 15 to 17 minutes of foreplay to really get their, their desire on board, to get their physical body into responsive desire. Whereas men oftentimes are good to go much quicker than that. I've also seen the reverse. I've seen women that have a, you know, much easier time accessing that and men that are delayed and having usually anxiety, um, 
issues that are causing sexual dysfunction. But yeah, as a, as a general rule, women need some foreplay. They need some warm up. <laughs> right. Some story, <laughs> some narrative for sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, we were talking about heterosexual relationships. Um, if we could talk maybe about same sex or lesbian mm-hmm. relationships, I know a lot of your work is uh, in that area. Um, are there differences when uh, talking or dealing with two women who are in a sexual relationship versus, um, you know, a, a, a heterosexual uh, relationships in terms of settle, sexual satisfaction? I mean, it would seem as though that uh, there'd be, um, you know, a lot of knowing each other's bodies in a way that, you know, it takes work for others. So I'm wondering if you could talk yeah. a little bit about, you know, your research and how you deal with same sex and lesbian relationships. Yeah, great question. Um, so my my doctoral project was a review of all the literature trying to understand what are best practices in working with same-sex couples, female couples, um, around sex therapy. So I read all the data around lesbian, around queer, around women, and around general sex therapy. And then that was sort of the, and then distilled it down to, to my final project. What's interesting is Yes, there are some key differences. There are a lot of similarities, but there are some key differences and we haven't really studied them well enough yet. So I extrapolated some some things, but specifically, if you look at it through the lens of like culture, you know, women are conditioned around lots of things in terms of gender roles and expectations and people pleasing. And again, this is not an absolute, but it's a common thread. And so when you've got two women together, it, it, it sort of can like magnify that dynamic. There tends to be, um, there tends to be a lot of agreement. There tends to be a lot of, um, caretaking. There can be enmeshment or fusion, as we say. Um, there's, there's a lot of, um, closeness that can happen. Um, sexually that translates into, I mean, what we jokingly call lesbian bed death. Um, but that, that, um, fall off that can happen in sexual because the, the, the relationship tends to be quite strong. And yet sometimes the closeness inhibits the excitement that can, that can, or the, the separateness that can trigger, um, sort of sexual appetite. Um, where, where the dating also gets a little bit confusing is that, so a lot of, um, sexual statistics that are quoted around lesbians come from a study that was done in the eighties, um, American couples. The problem is the way they asked, how often do you have sex? Well, what constitutes sex? If it's penetrative sex, which is how the researchers who were heterosexual were asking the question, lesbians aren't necessarily having penetrative sex. And so then it looks like their numbers are significantly lower. But if you consider sex to be digital penetration, meaning fingers or oral sex, or just rubbing body to body, if any of those, because those that can definitely produce an orgasm. But if that's, if it, you know, what we have to define what is sex first. And, and so the, the data is inconsistent because the research isn't clean. So what we, what we have found in research that was really clearly geared towards women that were in same-sex relationships is that those sessions tend to be much, have much higher orgasmic uh, statistics. So women paired with women, when they do have sex, it tends to be 
more reliably orgasmic and more pleasurable. The sessions also tend to be much longer. So heterosexual sex is quicker because men typically have access to an erection and an orgasm fairly quickly, whereas women take some time. So two women together are going to take a lot more time. (laughs) So the sessions are longer. They're less frequent overall, but I don't know if that's reliable data because of the earlier problem I mentioned, but they are more orgasmic and have high satisfaction. So, you know, the other piece, which gets a little complicated is gender roles. And when you've got two women or two men, um, there, the, the, the role negotiation looks, looks complicated and looks different, right? There isn't a man and a woman in the relationship. There's two women. And so who sort of is the initiator who, you know, and, and, and all of that, um, gets negotiated between each couple. And so when you're working, when you're doing sex therapy with two women, it's going to look different because we've got to consider, um, what are the messages that they've gotten from their community or from their culture or from their themselves? Um, who is, you know, how, how do they interact with one another? Do they share the roles? Is there, you know, what's on, what's off limits and what's expected. And so a lot of this is, is that there's a lot of implicit ideas coming in and they need help in talking about all of this stuff as we all do. So yes, it is, it is different, but yet there's also a lot of the same dynamics that come up. And is there a big world out there of therapists who specifically have expertise on dealing with same-sex female relationships, or if if you're somebody who's in that group, are you really <laughs> at times feeling really helpless or, or your choices are really limited? Yeah, gosh. Um, I, I, in town, I think there are very few options. Um, in general, sex therapy is not a very common focus. And then when you narrow it further to same sex, no, I mean, there are some really talented queer therapists in town, but they don't focus on sex therapy per se. And I would say that generalizes like, you know, this is just part of the dynamic of having, um, yeah, of having it be women focused. And then if it's same sex focused even further down, um, I mean, I'm woman focused at this point, but I understand that world well. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty unique specialization, which is also part of why I chose to do it for my, my doctoral program, because, you know, I was trying to make a contribution and there is a lot known in general about sexuality, but it narrows as you go to women and it really narrows as you go to same sex um, attracted women. So I thought this is cool. I want to, I want to stand out and do something. Yeah. I want to ask you about your background and how you got to this point in a second, but uh, going back to, you know, the question of what are some of the factors? And you talked about a lot of the women that you see are maybe 35, 40 to 64, and they're dealing with a variety of issues. How much of the work that you do involves women who are thinking of affairs or infidelity or have been a part of that or who are, involved in that i mean how much of i guess the question is if we weren't on a podcast and i was just talking to you i'll just be blunt (laughs) how often do women cheat on their partners because they don't feel sexual satisfaction with their partners 
Okay. So those are two different questions, actually, I think, or, or my answers are, it depends so often. That's my answer. Um, I definitely see a lot of infidelity is a big part of my business because in addition to sex therapy, I also do work with sex addiction or sexual compulsion. The, the infidelity component typically though, has the woman, if most of my couples in that um, area are heterosexual and oftentimes the woman is the betrayal partner. So she's, she's more on the side of being cheated on than being the cheater. That's not to say women don't do it because they certainly do. But, um, so I don't, I don't see it as frequently, but of course I definitely do see it. Now, my clinical experience with infidelity is, yes, sometimes it's about dissatisfaction, but a lot of times it's actually not, it's about something else. It's about identity. It's about, um, longing. It's about wanting to feel feel yourself expressing in a certain way that hasn't happened so long in your dormant marriage. You know, it's not about the, it's not about the logistics of the sex or the quality of the sex. I would argue it's more about the quality of the connection or lack thereof, or it's about them having a crisis about their own um, mortality or worth, or they're working other stuff out. It's, it's, it's often not about the partner at all. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, cause you often hear, you know, you know, women, women will, men will cheat for the you know, attraction and women will cheat for connection, you know? And so I'm just, it's interesting to see, mm-hmm. you know, um, let's talk about you a little bit and, and your background and how you got here. You have a really interesting story and I'll just do a little bit of it and then you can, you can talk about yourself, but uh, you used to be a columnist for uh, for News Hawk. You wrote some columns. You're a very good studio photographer, and uh, you've done a lot of work there. And um, I know when I was uh, interviewing you, you were doing some great coaching of me, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and you you sort of took on this stage of your this uh, profession a little bit later in your mm-hmm. life. So it's, you know, you're a big inspiration in that regard because often a lot of people sort of think, oh, I can't do something different when I'm past a certain age. And you got to a certain point where you're like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it. And now you've been so successful. So can you tell me a little bit about the Jen Kennedy story and sort of what you <laughs> sure. did before this and why you decided to become a uh, therapist and, and and offer these services to, to people? Yeah, I feel like there's chapters, you know, my my bachelor's was in public relations, which if you know me makes sense, I'm a super extrovert. And um, it was really fun. I worked at an agency in LA and um, I just was always very interested in marketing and messaging and, you know, and and so that was a really fun beginning for me. I got to work with lots of clients, understand um, sort of how their business came together from that side of things. Um, and then when I was 30, I went back to school and got a degree in photography uh, um, and I worked for the next 10, 12 years doing photography. I, I started with all my PR friends would hire me to shoot their clients. And that was really a great foundational, um, way to start as an entrepreneur. And, and then as the market got a little tighter, um, this is like in the mid two thousands, um, I started writing and shooting. 
So initially I was just doing a lot of photography, um, but I always loved it for for portraiture. Like that was really my my draw. I liked people. I mean, that's why I did PR. That's why I did photography. And I just, I, I thought it was such an interesting process to sit with people and learn, like learn their story. Basically what we're doing right now. I love this process. I think it's really fun and, and interesting. I'm, I'm very curious about people. Um, now I had been in and out of therapy over the years and I had some really um, wonderful role models, I would say in that. And I always sort of had it in my back brain that I wanted to do it. And I just, I don't know, the thought of going back to grad school, the thought of um, even just doing this career just seemed like so, um, I don't know, too big, too, like, who am I to be a therapist? You know, I don't know. It's like this weird, this weird thing. And then I, you know, honestly, I lost my mom. It was really sudden. She died. And I had this like aha moment in my late thirties of like, wait a second, this is what I've always wanted to do. I'm here for a finite amount of time. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And so I went back to grad school at 40 and, um, that was a little brutal. Um, but I will say this particular profession is so, um, it, 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 it's actually a benefit to be an older adult, I think, because I've lived a lot of life and I've had a lot of relationships and I went into it knowing um, that I really wanted to see couples. Like that was my focus always. And I felt like this gave me clinical knowledge to back up what I had sort of experienced in my own life, but also to inform my writing going forward. Cause I love writing. Um, and so that was sort of the, the, the direction I took. And then from seeing couples, what kept bubbling up out of that is, is sex. Like nobody's talking about sex, you know, a lot, there's a lot of couples therapists, but, but they sort of avoid the conversation of sex because they have their own hangups. They don't know, enough. They feel like they're not sure how to navigate the dynamics. Um, and so it was just a really awesome niche that I, that I grabbed onto early along with sex addiction. That's another, you know, people do substance addiction recovery, but they don't do sex addiction or sexual compulsion because it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of, um, stigma around it. And so I went toward both of those things and it's been glorious. I love it. I think it's so interesting. Um, again, my, my grad program though, didn't really prepare me well enough. So I then went and did a PhD, um, that was focused on sex therapy. So everything in that, that's the sexology was, uh, human sexuality. So that was a whole range of, of everything related to sex and sexuality. So that has been so helpful to really, and, and the, the dissertation process was by far the most valuable element of that, but really thinking about something that I care deeply about. And then now it's like, okay, how can I make contributions to the field? How do I pair what I'm seeing clinically? And then how do I put, put resources out into the world that are going to be valuable to women or people? I mean, I think eventually I will broaden um, who just want a better sex life, make it accessible, make it digestible. Um, yeah. So that's sort of my, my journey and my my plan, <laughs> my master plan. <laughs> well, it apparently works and it's still working. So, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> and, I, and I, I agree with what you say is sometimes we're better students when we're older 
than when we we're trying to mm-hmm. learn everything in our 20s. I mean, our brains have not developed yet, you know, so it's it's interesting, <laughs> you know, we should all be lifelong learners and always trying to achieve something, no matter how old we are. Um, you know, you mentioned a couple of things about like this just taboo of talking about sex. 2023, how can we still be like that? Why is our culture still so afraid to talk about sex in any any meaningful way outside of stereotypes or you know um you know ways to poke fun at it you know why why do you think that is well this isn't going to be a popular answer but i think it's the patriarchy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think um it's weird we we have this this culture that is so confusing because on one hand we you know it's the madonna whore thing it's like we want um women in particular to be beautiful and to be um, attractive and sexy, but we're not too sexy. We want them to be, there's, there's a purity and yet there's a, you know, and it's, we get a lot of mixed messages. It's confusing. Everybody has sexual interest. I mean, not everybody, but for the most part, most people have some sexual interest and yet they're not sure what they're allowed to say or what they're allowed to show. And then it's just, it's a lot of like inner dialogue that doesn't get processed externally. And so it comes out in these ways, you know, these sideways of aggression and frustration and assault. And unfortunately now banning of books and information, it's, it's fear-based when it shouldn't be, it it doesn't need to be, Yeah, you know? So just, just kind of, kind of wrap up a little bit here for people watching who are interested in the pleasure project and the pleasure circle, you know, what do you want to say to them? Um, there are so many people, as we know, who are good. You know, I'm old. It is what it is. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I'm not going to do that. You know, that's embarrassing. You know, like, like I'm not going to, you know, there's so many people who will dial back what maybe what their inner voice might be telling them because they're embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Right. For all these reasons, you know, that people will talk about anything, but if it comes to this world, they won't talk about it. What would you say to sort of encourage people to to take the chance, take the risk to sort of seek out some Mm -hmm. uh, knowledge from an expert or some bonding with other women or other individuals in similar situations? Um, What would you say is like, why, why is this important for you, for somebody? I mean, okay, let's put it in perspective. You're not going to die if you don't have sex, which I know is a newsflash for some uh, men. But but we're not just here to be productive. We're We're not robots, right? We're here for enrichment. We're here for connection. We're here for creativity. And sex is like a, is a bridge for all of those things. We're here to experience life and it's an opportunity to, to have joy and certainly pleasure and why not you know so so things scare you and you do them all the time so this is one of those things where you can do it your way but like a little bit more information or some context and that might look like reading a book or reading my newsletter you know nobody has to know you're reading it um you can sign up for it it's free you can read it and and, and never tell anybody um, but it gives you just some permission to like understand your body and it's fun. It's fun to have a great sex life, even if it's just with yourself, you know, but like trying different things and and opening up your world um, 
I think can be a really joyous experience. So yeah, I think you deserve that. And just to follow up on that, you know, like sex with yourself, right? That That is like the ultimate taboo, right? Like at least for men, like, oh, you can't get anyone. So you have to, you know, but you're trying to normalize that. Like, can you talk a little bit about um, why that's important? And it's not something to, mm-hmm. to say that, oh, it's because you can't be with somebody that maybe you choose to just be with yourself for whatever reasons. I mean, can you talk about that? Yeah, I don't think it's an either or. I think it can definitely be a both. I think you can have really satisfying partnered sex and satisfying solo sex. Um, And in fact, I've seen that when people understand their own bodies, they have better partnered sex because they can give guidance. You know, what, where are they more sensitive? How, you know, how much pressure do they like? How much, how fast, you know, it's, it's different from, it's a different experience. And I strongly encourage people to not use porn when they are having um, solo sex. I I think it's really great if you can drop into your body, slow it down, be present with yourself. It's, it's a whole different way of, of pursuing it. Um, But I don't think it's, I don't think it has to be like shameful or taboo. I think it, it can be beautiful. It's a, it's a natural progression. I mean, ultimately an orgasm is just a muscle spasm. So, you know, it's, it's not this crazy, terrible thing. And you know, that, that means anything. Um, it's just part of our lived experience. And I don't think any part of our body should be, um, shameful, but I think everything needs to be in balance, right? It shouldn't be compulsive. It shouldn't be, um, something that takes you away from connection or takes you away from, um, authenticity. But I, I think there's definitely a place for it. And I think it can be a really great experience. And toys are amazing. They can really enhance that experience. It can be fun. Mm-hmm. All right. So last thing here, you mentioned porn. Okay. Porn bad? Porn good? Do you ever tell couples, like, maybe porn will give you a spark? Or is it no, that's unrealistic and it's just going to wreck you? Um, I know it's these are broad questions and it depends on the yeah, person. But it in general, I mean, it sounds like you're so... saying porn should not be a crutch. Right. That's what I'm saying. Porn should not be a crutch. Um, I find the the question I typically ask is with men is not, are you watching porn, but how much porn are you watching? My <laughs> presumption is right. Just build it into the question. Um, because most men, many men, most men that I see are watching porn. Um, and I sometimes see it getting in the way of their, their job, their mood, their erectile functioning with partnered sex, um, you know, it can, it can slide off into a whole, um, problematic realm, but if that's not the case and it's occasional and it's, it's fine, you know, sometimes, yes, I've said, you know, Hey, if, if, if partners want to both watch it together, great. If you occasionally watch it by yourself, great. I'm, I'm sex positive. I just like everything to be in balance. I don't, wanted to shift over into this, like, you know, so, um, but you've got to think about the images that you're putting in your mind. And then also how is that priming you for partner sex? You know, are you comparing yourself? Are you comparing your partner? Um, are you training yourself to have an orgasm incredibly fast? Um, are you pushing yourself beyond the limits of where you really want to go? You know, so I, 
I, I just have a lot of trepidation. I've seen a lot of problematic things with porn. That said, I'm not completely opposed to it either. Yeah. So, so walking away. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, do you want to list maybe uh, your website or any information about the Pleasure Project before we wrap up? Obviously, I'll put it in the bio of uh, the okay. story in the YouTube. But how can people reach you? Because I imagine people are going to want to talk to you now. <laughs> yeah. So the easiest way is to head to my website, pleasureproject.us. That's my sex therapy um, specific website. Uh, my therapy one is rivieratherapy.com, but pleasureproject.us has links to everything. It has links to the newsletter. It has links to my podcast and it has links to the pleasure circle, which is the small group offering. Um, that's going to be the easiest way to, to find me. And then, oh, Instagram, of course, we're all, we're all on Instagram these days. So I'm uh, Dr. Jen Kennedy. Would love for you to follow me and my adventures. And yeah. And then also, if you have questions um, that you want covered on the podcast, people can always, you know, send me those, send me those and I'll address them um, in future episodes. So, yeah. That's great. Well, well, Dr. Kennedy, I appreciate your time. I've had two hours now of like free therapy. So this, <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. Uh, no, uh, I appreciate your time. And uh, you obviously do something incredibly important to the community for everybody in a variety of ways. And your own story is really inspirational too, because you uh, have had multiple careers and you've reinvented yourself and you go toward this. I mean, you're an example of somebody who's who's hungry, who's climbing a mountain, who's always wanting to do the next thing. And I really like what you said about, you always had that voice in the back of your head saying, I want to try it. And I think the worst regrets people can have is like never actually listening to that voice. And then it's too late. And, you know, you got to hear it. If it's there for a while, it's there for a reason. And you decided to, to go down that path. So I'm sure there's many people who benefited from all of your expertise and research and caring and kindness. I hope so. I hope so. I am hungry. I love, I love this process. I think it's fascinating on so many levels. So yeah, thanks for sharing. And thank you for your time. And I really appreciate it. So uh, take care. Have a great day. Okay. Thanks.